I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society to discuss everything from their latest endeavors to career highlights and early beginnings. Intimate, in-depth talk with pioneering talents and fascinating folk discussing the stuff that matters to them and how they scaled the slippery slopes of success. Kenneth Branagh is a national treasure, has dazzled audiences in Shakespearean adaptations from Henry V to Hamlet. He's played the gruff but lovable detective in the Emmy Award-winning BBC crime drama Wallander, or Wallander and Sean in blockbuster films like Dunkirk and Tenet. His latest film, Belfast, which he wrote and directed, tells the story of a young boy's experiences during the upheaval in the late 60s in Northern Ireland, inspired by Kenneth's own childhood there. When we spoke, I began by asking him if he'd spent most of his life or much of his life feeling like he had unfinished business with his home city. In a curious whirly gig of time, I, I, I was able to have my first job back in Belfast when I left drama school. In fact, in my last term at drama school, I went back to be in a Graham Reed play, Too Late to Talk to Billy, on the BBC. And that was back in the days when a, a new play, contemporary play, would have an audience five, six million people. Blimey! So, so, yeah, it was pretty incredible because you definitely got the feedback the next day. And in that case, I remember... The real, the takeaway from that was that people said, hey, that's a story about Belfast and a Belfast family, but it's not primarily about the troubles. That was really interesting. I think people had maybe um, had enough of the saturation coverage of what seemed to be, you know, relentlessly bleak picture of, of the time there. So I was aware that people were interested in different ways in, in Belfast. For, for me, then going through um, a sort of professional life where there, to my you know everlasting gratitude, professional association with Shakespeare uh, and all things fancy pantsy, um, got me further away from um, an acknowledgement really of this formative time in my life and indeed in my creative life. And so when it when it came to um, lockdown, I suppose 
with my lockdown began, I don't know if it happened to you, many people, friends called me in the first few weeks, I called them, there was lots of reconnecting, people who needed to speak to each other, wanted to re-establish, your, your friendship is precious, our connection is precious, and, uh, and so it was with me in Belfast, I realised how very deeply precious uh, that connection has been and and the acknowledgement of it more fully and really the attempt to understand both the, the sacrifice my parents made and what it did what that event what that time did to my character uh, suddenly felt like a story that maybe could stretch out in a different way so yeah eventually it became the business of the lockdown it's a very beautiful film it's a sort of loving homage from the opening scenes as the camera sort of swoops across the city and I mean I love Belfast but it's not the most beautiful city you've ever seen and yet you manage to make it in those opening shots look fairly yeah fairly romantic in a way you know with the glistening steel and it's it's also a, a sort of series of shots that, that set up the new look of Belfast rather than how it looked in the 70s so tell me a little bit about um or 60s, your relationship with the city, I mean, how you think of it, and is it deeply embedded in the nostalgia of youth, do you think? Well, uh, it's, in a way, I wanted to try and get away from nostalgia or, or the idea of uh, sort of infantilizing myself and sort of deciding that life is made comfortable by returning to some heightened idealistic version of, 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 of childhood. But you're right. I mean, I know what you mean about Belfast. And, and so to answer your question, I saw it in terms of this big village city, big architecture. It still has this character of the 19th century commercial giant that would eventually build the Titanic that for linen production and beer production and, of course, shipbuilding. It was a sort of world leader. And yet it's enfolded by the cave hills. So you feel greenery is very close to the, the lock and the... The, the invitation to the world outside through the, the water is, is always present. Um, it had a very sort of masculine feeling to me, the city, um, but, but somehow was always, was always hand in hand with something softer. So in the opening image of this, this film, I wanted to feel that, that sense of those, those places and those things, particularly the cranes in the shipyard. You can never get away from them. And you can never get away from the sound of the shipyard. The horns were always going off. You're aware when big ships came in, be they commercial ones or, 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 uh, you know, or, or cruise ships. And so that that sense of the city's presence in my life, uh, it's um, you know very active. It it keeps you. It always always kept you on your toes, Belfast. That's what I felt. It keeps you alive and alert. It's a vital city, and you, uh, you're. It's not as sort of exciting on the surface as somewhere like New York, but it's got that in Belfast. I do feel that that you're required as a participant in the city to be very very uh, ready for action. And I suppose I wanted to get that there. And I also wanted to see, as you point out, where we got to, where we appear to have got to, and where where we came from and what we passed through, which was this very dark period. Uh, but but it's it's kind of its permanent sort of presence in my life hasn't ever really gone away. You mentioned um, Shakespeare and Fancy Pantsy and perhaps uh, people's impression of, of you and what you did over the years would be very much tied to the sort of the Shakespeare and the tights. Um, and I wondered at what point you broke away from the Belfast boy that arrived here at, at eight years old and, and, and assimilated uh, in the way that you have and whether it was ever a conscious thing or whether like me, I mean, I had an Irish accent when I moved here at 16 years old. I don't know where it went to. It, it, it you know, it probably wasn't that strong because my parents weren't Irish. So that would have you know, leavened it a bit, but, but nevertheless, you know, 
I don't feel I ever made a conscious choice. I wondered if if you had in terms of, I don't know, coming to school, you know, in the film, uh, your mother or the mother, Katrina Balfe, talks about, you know, they're never going to accept us if we go there, if we go to, to, to England. We're never going to be welcome, really. It, was that an experience that you then subsequently had? Uh, I was aware that that was the context. I was aware that there was an association with the accent and 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 the television news, and sometimes that was not a, not a positive one. And we were moving to a place where there's a lot of um, army families, so there was just that literal wariness. Everything about what happened with the violence kept you on tenterhooks. I think it kept you very much adrenalized and on code red and and careful, very careful. Something it did to my personality, which I think was was not always helpful. Maybe it was good in terms of becoming an actor. You got to be, you know, you assumed masks and you put them on quickly. When it came to the accent, for me, it was just about, it was blending in. It was just, it, it sort of rubbed itself off anyway. I was, you know, 10 years old when I eventually landed in an English primary school. So I think the process was inevitable. But in a way, I wanted, I ended up wanting for a while to be as neutral and invisible as possible, because it seemed that what I was coming from was um, a place and an atmosphere at that time where anything you did, anything you said could be listened to, reported, um, you know, kind of you could be told tales on. Um, you could you could cause, you know, impacts that you weren't aware of yourself. So it, it I think it sent me to a, a, the, the place of greatest kind of invisibility. And I think that was reflected in letting the accent just go um, and, 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 and trying to to not stick out because for a while in Belfast, that seemed to be enormously important just for your own personal safety. Interesting choice then to become an actor if you were trying to put yourself in the place of greatest invisibility. In life. Yes. You know, in life. But but I think what acting did for me uh, was to release something that I was very keen to revisit again in this, in this, in this work, which is, I would say a spirit, a very lively, creative spirit that was very, very open. I was a very, very playful kid, very, very imaginative and encouraged to sort of follow stories through. So professionally, as is often the case with actors, you know, there's in life a certain shyness or in my case, a certain desire to be invisible, but to then run at these chances to escape and sound and be like people that you would never possibly be with a sort of freedom and a release and a relish and a, and a sort of full energy that, that is born out of, as it were, living quite a lot of your life in neutral. And there's a scene at the beginning of the film uh, where um, Billy, um, it, it, I mean, it, it basically feels like childhood innocence destroyed in a moment, uh, you know, on the turn of an incident on the street. How true was that to your to your own experience? Uh, it's absolutely true that the uh, that moment where living a life that seemed to express the idea that it takes a village to raise a child. And I was very happy in the village I was in, a, a small neighbourhood of really one street, a couple of streets really, next to a park uh, and that we walked across to our school and with a mixed population of Catholics and Protestants, mainly Protestants, but um, quite a number of Catholics, uh, that in one, really, I almost feel like it was 20 seconds in which, um, yeah, it was, you might say that the last 20 seconds of my childhood is how it seemed to me. Um, in retrospect, 
was the the faint hearing of what I thought were, were bees buzzing and then realized it wasn't. And then a, bee, a swarm of bees appearing at the bottom of the street. And then I really realized it wasn't. And then I realized in this slow motion, surreal kind of time standstill beat that happens in the film, that this was a crowd, this was a mob. And with the explosion of a petrol bomb, this was a riot. And I didn't really know anything else after that for a few hours because I'd spent the next, you know, sort of traumatized moments under a table, hysterical. Really, I was quite hysterical at the time. Um, and then, and then I came out. The, I came out the door, and literally, the ground from underneath our feet had been taken up. The paving stones were lifted, and now they, they were at the end of the street, being a barricade. So you were in this kind of living metaphor of of, of feeling that your uh, your life had turned upside down. A whole set of new rules had to be learned and people you were playing with two hours ago no longer lived there um it was um a very very um sort of catastrophic change yeah tell me a, a little bit about your parents who sadly neither have survived long enough to 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 see the film um in Belfast, they're played by Jamie Dunn and Katrina Balfe. They're incredibly glamorous. They're 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 full of life and zip. And but 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 they look like a, a Hollywood couple. Um, is that the license of movie making, or is that how how you saw them in in your mind's eye? I like your word zip. They had zip. They really <laughs> did have zip between them. The real McCoy had the zip. They had that that fieriness. I, I you'll know this. Um, you know, it's true of all women, but the, the Irish women have their particular part of this sort of lionish fiery uh, quality uh, quick quick to laugh quick to love quick to argue quick to fight um you know passion lived very close to the uh, to the uh, to the skin to the surface of the skin and they had that they had that they had that sizzle i would say and i didn't really need to idolize them much they didn't have much money but they had an innate sense of style particularly my mother and she loved dancing and she you know she knew how to wear clothes and she did all the daft things that stained her legs when there was no money for stockings and you paint the line up the back of your legs and everything and, and anything and everything that would be you know part of a normal younger person being interested in clothes and fashion and all the rest of it uh, and not having the, uh, not having the money, but the imagination. And um, yeah, she, I mean, she, for instance, was one of 11 kids. So she was the youngest. Her mother died giving birth to her. She had to, she had to speak up. She had to be very noisy in her life. If uh, she wanted to be listened to that carried on through into her role as a parent. And she was, uh, you know, a beautiful piece of work. And, uh, and 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 the, the the match was very strong. They'd known each other since they were toddlers. But your father was away from home often because he was he was working in in England. H- how did that affect you growing up? Do you think? Um, I certainly adored him, worshipped my father, um, and uh, really he was a. I thought he was a wonderful fellow, and uh, I think it was torture for him to be away so much. And um, and so these. These moments, these partings, departures, the movie's full of them, you know, it seems part of the Irish condition, Uh, sometimes for just economic prosperity or opportunity, you had to go away, you had to leave so many sacrifices made. And, um, and so he made those, but he would bring back, you know, a matchbox car every time he came, he came back and that became part of a treasured collection of mine. He'd always bring something back from my brother. Um, But I think it was, it was, it was, hard on them and I think that he understood very much how how in that absence 
my my mother as many 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 mothers we were very typical of many families that made you know made amazing um contributions to family life and carried carried the family and you know as he put it puts it to her in the film she she raised them A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You know, it's really striking, um, Ken, that we're sitting here and we're talking probably more than you've ever talked about your own personal life. And this film, in a way, has stripped you of that opportunity for invisibility that, 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 that you've worked very hard to shroud yourself with. How difficult is it for you, having made a film that is so closely connected to your own life, to sort of have to step forward, you know, and do the very thing that, that you've been dodging <laughs> for decades? Well, I think you're right. You put your finger on it and it's a sort of paradox. Uh, but the, the writing of the story was a sort of uh, necessity um, and, and in a way a sort of act of generosity, uh, an act of gratitude um, for, for who, who I was and the people who've, you know, been part of allowing me to be, to be who I am. And um, yes, it feels, it feels unusual, a little vulnerable making. I find I get pretty emotional these days. Um, about you know about about this is a very sort of full experience making making the story but it was um it just seemed so necessary and i must say that this lockdown i think it made such an impact on so many people in, in terms of an introspection uh, not just navel gazing in an indulgent way but really a, a desire to look at consider be grateful for that that which is precious to you and um uh, and it, you know, it isn't. It isn't just as it were, as it were about self-regard. It's about, I think, uh, self-remembering, uh, particularly taking us back to those moments. Not, not as we touched on earlier, to try and live a life as sort of grown-up children, but to be childlike, to 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 
to look at the world, a difficult world, a world that is unsettled and crowding in on us and unexpected and full of the unknown, with as much wonder as you can, with as much gratitude as you can, and all the things that can sound very, very hippy-dippy. But I reckon that a lot of us went through, we know this, that lockdown has been profound in the way it has affected people. And in the case of this tiny little corner of the artistic world, um, it sent me to to try and look at some of those sacrifices that, that, that people make on a daily basis, that parents make small and large, and, and how families negotiate the darker side of life and, and how we can access as much as we can, uh, humor, dance, of jokes, you know, ad hoc parties, whenever the bejesus were allowed to have them. Um, and um, uh, we won't get into that, but... Um, uh, oh, we could. No, that's the subject of many, 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 many interviews, I think. But um, yes, it, we just have gone to, gone to um, places that are looking to, you know, find the the self-care, I suppose, that that things like lockdown encourage us to, to value and prioritise. Uh, you chose, um, just going back to the film directly for a moment, you chose a sort of mono soundtrack, if you will, in that you, you decided that Van Morrison had everything uh, to say musically about Belfast and there was no need to dilute the Van Morrison. Um, why did you come to that conclusion? And, and, and has he always been, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of an inspiration in a way or someone who evokes Belfast? I mean, Madame George, it just is Belfast, isn't it? You're absolutely right. That's a wonderful song from, uh, uh, and it's a sort of, you know, it's not too grand to say it's a sort of meditation. Um, it's a stream of consciousness and it's the story of perhaps an aging transvestite in Belfast in 1968. But there it was as part of the, I would say you might, you know, epoch making or certainly truly significant album Astral Weeks that had been in the charts for two years at the time this film was made. Uh, Van Morrison was one of our own and that's how we viewed people who left the island and went off and were seen by the rest of the world and there he was writing songs about places in Belfast, Cypress Avenue, you know, which we'd driven past. Van had been up there, you know, telling stories that the world now knew about. This was amazing. He's a corner boy, as he calls himself. That's where he learned his music, playing on the streets and, you know, he saw himself in this film and he was a a great collaborator. He wrote us a new song for the beginning. He wrote us, I think, this very beautiful mood music of, of uh, saxophone and electric piano, which employs his great sort of taste. And also this thing with Van Morrison, yeah, everything is live. He never, he never, he doesn't interfere. He doesn't sort of composite his recordings. He goes from start to finish every time he does a song. And when he records music like that, it always has the live quality. It always has the edge. He, he buys imperfection. He wants the roughness and the rawness of the human soul. You hear it in his voice. And it was a great gift to this picture. It, it strikes me as well that you had this sort of incredible ascension, didn't you? You were, you were 27 when you directed Henry V and, and 29 when you got double nominated as an actor and director in the Academy. Um, do you look back and think, wow, that happened really fast? And also, did it catapult you into a position, you, you say you embraced the idea of being an actor because that allowed you to play other people other than the person that you were trying to maintain invisibility for. But did fame, as opposed to acting, catapult you to a place where you felt quite uncomfortable? I, I think that, um, yes, the... It was obviously an amazing privilege to be able to make work um, 
like uh, Henry V as a film early on and to have our Renaissance theatre company and have Judy Dench and Derek Jacobi and Geraldine McEwen direct play, all of that, the work, the work, the work was fantastic. It was amazing. That was a thrill. The intensity of the gaze was unquestionably uncomfortable for me, yes. And I think probably it wouldn't take a, you know, a psychiatrist to look at something like Belfast and not be surprised that that would occur. So uh, I was happy, I was happy and happy in the stories and the art and the imagination. But the, um, but the, the second issue of, of, of your life being sort of additionally fascinating at such a time, at least I found so as a 27, 28 year old person of, of great uh, privilege, I didn't really know what had hit me to be perfectly honest, I was very much rabbit in the headlights um and and also doing a lot of what people asked me to do i felt churlish not to uh, but i think what it results in inevitably is overexposure and people get annoyed and you're too young and too lucky etc etc and you get a good kick up the ass um so i definitely had a couple of those and at this end of things it feels um it feels entirely different you've been you've been you know th through a few things as people say if you um, if you're going through hell, uh, the only thing to do is keep going. So I've kept going. If nothing else, that might, maybe they'll put that on the tombstone. Thanks for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my programme every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4, on Times Radio. Catch you next time. Hold up. 